It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main. And while we're showing a photo of Lagata the cat, uh, I will let you know that she's happily sitting out on the back porch right now. Normally, she runs upstairs the moment this show starts. She doesn't want to be anywhere she's near. Run to the back porch. Uh, well, we let her out. Uh, in you know, it's it's very funny. She we we come down the stairs, and for those of you. Uh, uh, who are listening to the podcast, you didn't see Legata, but we talk about Legata the cat, and we talk about Basil the dog on the show all the time. They are the official mascots of the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And uh, i got to get these bells a little closer. Um, and uh, she com- when we get up on, on Sunday, she, uh, she comes downstairs with us. She gets a little treat to start the day. Uh, you and Kathleen. Yep, and often she just goes and looks at the door as if the door will magically open to the back porch. Well, now she's a cat. She's a cat, I know. Well, you know, we, we I'm trying to train her to open the door so she can do it herself. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, And then she wanders out into the back porch, and today she's sitting there watching the birds at the suet feeder. Uh, I've I've decided it's, we're getting towards uh, the end of the season, and there's there's still lots of stuff. It's so green. It's so crazy green in the middle of October. It's nuts. Uh, but I thought, you know, we've got my birds migrating, and we're going to tell a sad tale of a migrating bird uh, later on in the show. I'm not going to do that now. I'm not going to start that way. But anyway, and, and she's still out there. I was like, I said, come on in. Show's about to start. And she said, nah. She's like, nope. No, not even that. It was just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, so she's no, going to gonna. Well. Gonna have to watch birds for a while because there's nobody, nobody to let her in right now. I'm not wandering back there. Well, I'm done. Got to. You're out there yep. for for a and, while. And, and and my dog Basil's out on the front porch. He's got so, the ceiling fan on and he's camped out. All right. So that's how we start our days. And how do you start so, yours? We're, welcome everybody to uh, to yeah, the show. Yes. And, and you did hear what I said. What? And and what you said. It's October 10th. The ceiling fan is on. My ceiling fan is on. Your yep. yard is green. My yard is green. I'm watching the uh, cottonwood. We have the most magnificent cottonwood, not on our property, but uh, across the alley. 
that tree is huge. And if it ever comes down, I'm moving. I'm done. I'm done with this neighborhood uh, because it is so gorgeous. Uh, and it has barely begun to turn. Uh, and uh, it's uh, I'm kind of surprised. And, and I think it's like going to happen overnight. It's going to be out, boom, yeah. like that. Yeah. And then all done. the leaves will be down, boom, like that. Well, yeah. as, as soon as the switch turns, you know, it's... Yeah. As, as one of the weathermen on TV, we'll talk to Rick DeMaio, our meteorologist, in an hour or two, but as one of the TV weathermen said, well, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop, but I can't even find the shoe box yet. Exactly. That's a great way of putting Okay. we got to give that guy a, a ding WGN. as well. I, it, and it wasn't skilling. It was somebody else. Okay, great. Uh, welcome to the show, folks. Wait, boy, I am so excited uh, to have our guest on today, the woman who wrote this book of Sound Mind. This is a, a slight departure from what we usually do on this show, but it is uh, the natural world, natural sciences. Um, I got pitched on this and immediately said yeah yeah i, I want to talk about this this is so cool and um and so peggy and i have gone through the book uh read all the footnotes actually i have not read all the footnotes i read a couple of the footnotes uh i, I read a couple of them too yeah. but uh uh I, oh I, I actually i read the, i read all the footnotes i didn't read the um the references. It, it even, there's even a glossary. Yeah, I love the glossary. We might just go through that and explain things to people. Uh, but we're, we're talking to Dr. Nina Kraus, PhD, this morning, uh, and uh, I, I think, and I've got, as I mentioned in in our social media, lots of visual and oral aids today. Uh, this is going to be a really fun show. So grab your coffee, curl up in front of your computer or your device, whatever it is. And, or your uh, cat or your dog. Or your... That's right. And as uh, Peggy mentioned later on, of course, Rick DeMaio. Uh, also later on, Peggy and I will be um, just uh, chatting about various things that are going on in the world uh, of, uh, of gardening and the environment. So without further ado, let us – I'm going to wait till. Uh, I'm about to go to you, Nina, so uh, get ready there. <laughs> uh, there she is, and there she pops into place. Uh, I didn't want to surprise you. I didn't want to sucker punch you there uh, by uh, going to the shot. That is uh, our guest, and I'm betting that the audio is not up. Nope, and it is now. Good morning, Nina Krause. Well, good morning. Uh, it is Next so time I bring my heart. You play... Uh, what a uh, harmonica. harmonica! You play harmonica and yeah, guitar, just, just for fun. Well, um, see, but, but, you know, I'll bet I could get your pussy cat to come in. I bet I could get you could get my pussy cat to run away. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Legata doesn't like music. She hates it when I sing. Now well, we should t- we should talk about that, Nina, because I don't know what that is. Um, when I'm talking to her, oh, there's a million jokes here. Yeah, I know. Believe me. I don't like it when I sing nobody. All right. All right. All right. The, the title, Mike, my, my singing group, uh, hey, Mike, Mike, you are overmodulating by the way. I am. Wow. Let's pull this back. Okay. Uh, I'm How's that? Is that a little better? Better. Okay. Uh, don't want to do that. No overmodulating because this is a weird thing, Nina. And as an audio, um, not technician, but uh, a a student of audio. Uh, with the setup here, yeah, I cannot hear myself in the headset. I wear the headset so I can hear you guys. Uh, 
Uh, but the way it's set up, if if I hear myself coming back, it will be there will be um, feedback on this. So I have to mute uh, the sound that goes into my own headset. So I can't tell when I'm being too loud here, and I tend to be loud because of my theatrical background. Um, and so it's a very odd thing. I hear myself kind of muffled. I can pull the headset a little bit off like that and then hear myself in the real world, but I do not hear myself through the headsets. So it's a, it's a very peculiar way of doing it because I'm a radio guy, and for, I don't know, 40 years, uh, I've been hearing myself come through the headsets and know it's going out in the air, and now I don't. So very, very odd. Uh, but uh, that's maybe something you can com- comment on as well. And again, uh, Nina Krause, uh, let me give you your full introduction here because I'm probably only going to do it once, uh, is the Hugh Knowles Professor of Neurobiology, Communication Sciences, and Otolaryngology at Northwestern University. Uh, you're a neuroscientist, director of the renowned BrainVolts Lab, and you can go to uh, brainvolts.northwestern.edu and find out a lot of this stuff and even more. There's just tons of stuff. How long have you been studying audio, Nina? Probably uh, in utero. <laughs> okay. There you go. You get that as well. But but seriously, folks. Um, all right. And getting paid for it. Ah, okay. Well, that happened... Um... In, in graduate school. But let, let me tell you, so I, I started out um, majoring in comparative literature. And then, because um, I, I was brought up in a, in a house where we, multiple languages were, 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 were spoken. And, uh, and, and my mom also was a, a, a pianist. And so sound seemed important. Um, and uh, so I started with comparative literature and then I, um, I took some biology and really loved that and decided, okay, I'm going to be a bio major. Um, then I discovered a book called uh, Biological Foundations of Language and thought, wow, this is great. I can marry the biology and the language. Um, and so eventually I, I decided to uh, go to, to graduate school in neuroscience uh, to study sound in the brain. And that's when it occurred to me that... Um, they would pay me to learn. And they've been doing that ever since. And <laughs> it's just the, the best gig ever. I feel I'm, I'm so incredibly lucky. Um, mm-hmm. My job is, is, is to learn and to think about cool stuff. And, um, and you know, when I started out, they, they gave me a, a stipend of $200 then. And my rent was $50 a month. Um, and, and, you know, I was set. Wow. You know, it's, it's wonderful to do the things you like, uh, and, and, to, and actually to, to, to get paid for them, which is, uh, uh, even better when, when that happens. So, um, mm-hmm. let's get into, uh, this, this wonderful book, um, about sounds and the brain, um, you or, or, or the, the the subtitle "How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World." Right, and for some of us, it isn't so meaningful. 
Um, but uh, that is always the goal, I guess, is to construct a meaningful uh, sonic world. Uh, you you talk about how uh, the the process of hearing uh, is not as straightforward as the old textbooks would have you believe. Uh, what what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that, you know, I, I think we, we tend to look at things um, even as a society in a rather compartmentalized way. And so when we think about hearing, traditionally people think about the ear and connect it to the brain and um, just within the context of uh, the, 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 the classical auditory network, but what it, it turns out, and really what my book is about, is that the sound brain, the hearing brain is vast, much vaster than uh, we have traditionally thought about it. Um, so not only does the uh, ear connect our brain to sound, but our brain connects um, all of us and our ear to um, all of the different processes that are going on in the brain. Let me just uh, break this down for a minute because the hearing brain, when I say the hearing brain is vast, I mean that it engages how we think. So what we know about sound, how we think, how we feel, you know, we all know that sounds evoke feeling, move, movement. So, you know, sound, uh, is it itself is movement. And to create sound, you have to be moving. Something has to move. So our moving brain and how we bring in information from our other senses together with the sound. So if you think about the hearing brain, the hearing brain engages, it, technically we can say, our cognitive, sensory, motor, and reward networks. That's how we think, <laughs> feel, move, and gather information from our other senses all at once. And that is our hearing brain and our sound mind. Uh, and uh, I believe it was Proust who was a believer in uh, of uh, smell being a, uh, a sense that evoked. Oh, look at this. Okay. Thank you. There's Swan's way. Um, and you make the argument in your book that, Hearing evokes memories uh, in, in a very, very strong way. I imagine all of our senses do, but you make the argument in the book uh, that uh, we have overanalyzed sight at the expense of hearing. Uh, and uh, that, that is a fact because we didn't even do studies of the kinds of things you're doing uh, long, until long after we were examining sight. Uh, how is it that the uh, our our hearing evokes memories? Well, the hearing brain is vast, and it, it engages what we know. So it engages our memories very, very deeply. Um, and so, um, and, and and you're right. Our other senses do, and they do they do so in combination. But you know, we we really. Um, memory and sound are linked so very, very, very tightly. Um, you know, I mean, we learned how to, um, you know, we, we learned our ABCs with 
sound, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, historically the bards sang what history was. Um, there is a tight, tight, tight connection, and and you know we we need it from an evolutionary standpoint. If you think about um, you know, we need to make sense of sound for our survival. So, you know, imagine you're any kind of animal and you hear a sound and you need to be able to pull that sound out um, of the sonic scape and decide, you know, is this something that um, I can mate with? Is this something that I can eat? Is this something that will eat me? Um, and you learn if, if you survive, um, you learn from experience. And so those memories are very important. And, and every time a particular sound happens, I mean, I was just thinking, uh, the sound of my neighbor's, uh, Mm -hmm. front door, it's just a sound I've heard again and again and again, and I can be anywhere and hear that sound and I'll, I'll know what it is because I have the memory of that. You write, yeah, you write about that in in uh, the the book, and that was one of the places that um, I highlighted it. Uh, uh, you say there is an ongoing conversation in neuroscience and philosophy called the uh, binding problem. It it boils down to a question of how the brain coordinates all its inputs, the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches guided by a lifetime of accumulated experience into a concrete whole. How does the combination of ever-accumulating sensory input produce the knowledge, that's my phone ringing, or I hear my brother pulling into the driveway? driveway. Yeah, where does the necessary unity come from? Somehow, the brain gathers information and binds it into a unified perception. Uh, and this is all done instantaneously. Yeah. Boom. Um, Without uh, even conscious thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the, so my, my, my book has 80 pictures. It has 80 illustrations. 40 of them were uh, created by Katie Shelley, who is um, an, an, an artist in uh, uh, living in, in Spain at, at, at the time. And we were going back and forth, back and forth with all of these um uh, illustrations. And the reason I, I bring them up now is that there's one, um, I believe it's in the, the chapter called The Quest, but it's the one um, that you read from where I talk about the binding problem. And, um, you know, if you, if you look at how sound um, enters the brain, and, um, and, and there's, there's this nice illustration of how the sound um, en- enters the brain, and then um, there is this feedback network that is you know, constantly feeding forward and back. Um, you know, this is very much a, a two-way street. And um, a, a very important part of the brain, I think very um, uh, appropriately called the midbrain, the midbrain is really in the middle of the action because it gets information from outside all of our senses and uh, from our thinking, feeling, moving, and um, uh, uh, brain, um, and, and, and brings all of this together such that um, with time, as we learn, we really are able to automatically hone in on what it is that 
is important and relevant, most relevant for us. And one of the things that fascinates me, and we're going to get to a clip here in a second, but one of the things that's, that fascinates me is when you explain how air movement outside of our bodies, outside of our heads, um, go into the ears, then have to be translated to electrical impulses that go to our brain. And that happens actually faster than sight, as you explained. That, that's, that's hard to wrap your head around, um, mm-hmm. that it happens that quickly. Well, well, but think about it. You know, if you just think about a, a, a visual object, it's, it's, um, it's there, it's static. Um, even if it's moving, this is happening in um, pretty slow time in comparison with sound. I mean, sound, if I just say the word say, um, you know, it's, it's over really quickly. Um, and the uh, acoustic ingredients that our brain has to respond to are happening on the order of microseconds. And so you need to have a brain system that is really fast and really able to uh, pull information at a very, 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 very fast time scale. All right. Process it all and differentiate each little sound. That's right. All right. Amazing. Uh, It's an amazing job. Yeah, it, it, it does. So let's, I want to talk about some of the work you've done and this illustrates it very well. Uh, bear with us. This is a clip of you from the Kennedy Center uh, three years ago. Uh, can you set, set up what you were doing at the Kennedy Center? Yeah. Well, I was invited um, by, by Francis Collins, and, uh, who's the director of the NIH, and, um, and, and Renee Fleming, who is the artistic director at the Kennedy Center, um, decided that... Um, uh, it, you know, it was about time that uh, the National Institutes of Health really looked at music from a biological perspective. And so there, you know, were a number of us worldwide who had been doing this. Um, and, you know, we were brought in and we gave these, these various talks. And, uh, at, you know, at the, at the end of that, what, you know, what, what has evolved is, um, well, importantly, some funding from the National Institutes of Health for Music. But the Kennedy Center part was to engage the public and to, you know, do what, you know, I'm hoping that my, that my book does, which is to make people aware um, how important, make people aware of how important music is to our lives and to who we are, and so they staged um, uh, a number of events, and uh, the one that I think you'll you'll be showing is one of these events at the Kennedy Center. All right, let's let's take a look at that right now. I think you're going to find this really fascinating. So, a sound wave comes in to the ear, and then we measure the electricity. And you can see that the sound wave and the brain wave physically resemble each other. In fact, so much that you can take the brain wave and play it out through a speaker and it will sound like the sound wave. So here's the sound wave. Here's the brain's response. So, so how is this even possible? 
How can we listen to how the brain listens? So imagine you're playing an instrument, and this is the movement of air molecules producing sound, and, and we're all used to the idea of translating sound, sound waves, into electricity through a microphone, and then we can play that through a speaker. We can then listen to those sound waves, and the currency of the nervous system is electricity. So with scalp electrodes, we can measure the brain's response to sound, and we now have an electrical signal which we can play through a speaker. So let me give you some examples. Sound waves and brain waves. First, you will hear a Rhodes piano playing funky music, and then you will hear the brain, the brain responding to those very notes. The brain. have a lot to work with. Let's hear some Beatles. First, some piano. The brain. Heart and soul and the brain. time favorite. And here is Renee. So <laughs> Renee will sing a few bars of the sound of music and the last three words will be the response of the brain to her voice. So we can measure the brain's response to a beautiful voice like that. I want you to hear a musically enhanced brain playing Amazing Grace. hear Amazing Grace played through a brain that has sustained a concussion. So again, we have a lot to work with to learn about sound processing in the brain and brain health. That is amazing stuff, speaking of amazing um, and the idea that um, you can attach electrodes to a person's scalp and play them out over a speaker. Um, and that allows you to do all kinds of investigations and, and treatments that formerly would not have been possible. 
Um, I also know learning, that learning about how students students learn. Yeah, and uh, and I need to add a, a couple. I had three things, three observations about that clip. One, that's uh, one of the coolest dresses ever. All right, <laughs> that 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 you were wearing. Two, um, you're you're kind of like me uh, during a presentation in that you pace like a caged tiger. Um, and and three, um, what were the acoustics like at the uh, <laughs> Kennedy Center? The acoustics were great, and it, it, it really matters. It really matters. You know, I mean, sound is filtered all the time through various parts of our brain. I mean, just take your cell phone into different rooms as you're listening, and, you know, you'll, you'll get that experience firsthand. Um, about moving, you know, my first language is Italian. And so ah. you know, I, I, if I'm going to speak at all, I, you know, I have to move uh, a lot. Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, but uh, uh, just playing the music, and we have other examples uh, here uh, representing. Uh, so, so, yes, Peggy. A question I would like to ask for you know, some of the re- some of the people watching um, who haven't read the book. So, what are we listening to when it's the the brain playing the music? What are we actually listening to? coming through the speaker what's the electrical charge coming from yeah beautiful question so the currency of the nervous system is electricity you know as i'm talking to you now the neurons in your brain that respond to sound are producing electricity so you know we are able with scalp electrodes to pick up that electricity created by neurons and then once we have electricity in the same way as you know, you have electricity that's um, produced by, um, as I'm speaking into a microphone right now, and then you can uh, play it back through a speaker. You can do the same thing with the electricity that you um, are able to gather from the brain, and uh, then uh, play it through a speaker, and you can hear the neural activity. All right, we will follow up on that, but uh, unfortunately, we have to pay some bills here. So uh, uh, we're talking to Nina Krauss, PhD. She's the author of of Sound Mind. Uh, we've got more when we come back. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. More clips too. A lot of uh, some fun stuff. So please stick around. This guy is a real jerk. He treats the preserves like trash, leaving a mess wherever he goes. The garbage goes in the can, jerk. We said in the can. If kids know this behavior is idiotic, so should adults. Thanks, boys. This definitely isn't the way to get rid of your trash. Hey, jerk. That's a garbage can, not a basketball hoop to work on your terrible shot. Come on, jerk. Seriously? This isn't even the worst jerk move we see. Some jerks do much more than litter. 
They find spots and turn them into their personal landfill. Jerks like this are the worst kind of jerks. How'd you like it if we came to your home and did this to your front lawn, jerk? These jerks dump and run, leaving us to clean up their mess. We appreciate people who clean up after themselves and the jerks. Trash in the preserves can be harmful to wildlife and easily ruin the experience for others. So don't be a jerk. You can help slow climate change in 2021 by composting. And you don't even need a backyard. By composting communally in multi-unit buildings across Chicagoland, Collective Resource Compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Here in the city. Um, oh, and there's the L. Okay. Right outside my window. Or not. Uh, well, that's that's Nagata trying to get back in. Yeah, I think so. She's No, she's here. She's, she's right okay. under my feet now. But this is something I recorded the other day. In anticipation of the show, um, we're, we're, we're in the city. We uh, downtown. I was downtown. I had an appointment downtown, so just turn on the. Uh, and here's the guy banging with the drums. And uh, Nina, what what are we dealing with here? Uh, by the way, it's Nina Kraus, author of Sound Mind. What happens to our brains when we're fighting to communicate over noise like this every single day of our lives? Oh, Mike, so many things. Um, I, I think one of the important points about sound is that it connects us. And it connects us to the lived world and to the living world. And if there's a lot of bracket, that will get in the way of that communication yeah. and that connection. And you notice, now, by the way, right. that the sound went away and I went, huh. And we do that all the time. Don't we? Yeah. A lot of times. And you may, and you write about this in the book. You don't even notice mm-hmm. sound until it's gone. And then you say, Oh, that thing was that lawnmower was on that uh, air compressor was on something else was going on. And then you notice it. In the house or right. Yeah. You notice it by the absence of the sound. You know, I think we live in, in, in a constant state of alarm that we aren't even aware of because, you know, these sounds that are, you know, just the, 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 the loud truck that's idling outside or a very noisy compressor, um, you know, it's there and we're, we're pretty good at, at tuning it out. So we think, um, you know, we're not consciously aware of it. But as you mentioned, um, the minute it goes off, you, you breathe this this. Mm-hmm. The sigh of relief because, um, you know, we, we really need to have um, 
first of all, we need to we need to be able to hear our thoughts. We need to be able to hear each other, um, and we need to be able to connect with the world in a way that um, that, that that is meaningful. And I think that that um, um, you know. Ha- Again, from from a deep evolutionary root, you know how if if, if what you're hearing is um, maybe the sound of of an avalanche far away, you know how how can you pay attention really to what you're doing, and how can you feel calm if you're hearing this roar in the background that is um, is is distressing to us biologically and that's why i like to say and really the book is all about how our sound mind is so interconnected again with how we feel um how we make sense of the world so what we need to do is to honor our sonic environment and to curate it in a way that makes us healthiest well Mm -hmm. speaking of uh the sorts of things the brain and uh, audio do for us and, and, and ways they trick us. Uh, let me show this. This is fascinating. This is from the BBC, but it's something, again, uh, that is, uh, you mentioned in the book. I, most of these clips, you know, I, I would read and you would say, oh, you need to go look this up. Well, of course I did. I was immediately on YouTube and trying to yeah. find these I was these. busy clips. watching Snowball the Cockatoo, for example. Oh, we're, get, we're yeah. getting to Snowball the Cockatoo in just a bit. But this is fascinating. Have a look at this. What do you hear? But look what happens when we change the picture. And yet, the sound hasn't changed. In every clip, you are only ever hearing ba with a B. It's an illusion known as the McGurk effect. Take another look. Concentrate first on the right of the screen. Now to the left of the screen. The illusion occurs because what you are seeing clashes with what you are hearing. In the illusion, um... oh, whoops, let's, oops, sorry, sorry, let's, uh, let's go back here. Sorry about that. Um, uh, that is uh, uh, amazing stuff also. What is the brain doing uh, at that point? Yeah, again, you know, it, it brings up the, the binding uh, problem, if you will. It's not a problem. It's a, it's a glorious uh, feat that, that the brain does is it really binds information uh, from our senses and it binds information also to what we know. Um, and in fact, if, if you if you know that the guy is just saying it or that the audio is constantly ba, you can look at the dude producing the tha sound and you will hear ba because you know that and you know what to listen for. And it's very important, and this is something that we do throughout our lives, is we learn what to pay attention to. We learn what to listen to. Um, you know, our, our sound mind is one that changes constantly throughout our lives based on our life in sound, 
which is again, why it is so important for us to be making the best decisions for our sound minds and for the mm -hmm. sound minds of our children educationally and uh, socially. Another aspect of uh, sound and the brain that you write about in the book is rhythm. Um, and um, you, you have this uh, very brief uh, paragraph about how much fun it is to hear a child uh, being out of sync and not getting the rhythm right. But I've got a story about that, and it's my mother who had this uh, – playmaker, whatever they call the Wurlitzer organ at home that she got later in life. And she would get up there and consistently be off the beat. And um, my brother and I were, because we were both, we were both singers, uh, musicians, and we're, we're just amazed that she could not, not seem to get on the beat. Um, and it was, it was sweet actually, but uh, a little, uh, disconcerting uh, to us. Uh, and then you write about uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory um, and this scene that was set to drums. Can, can you set this up just a little bit for us? Yeah, you know, when you think about rhythm, you often think about music, but in fact, there's so much rhythm in speech and in language. And in fact, some kids who have difficulty learning language or learning to read also and have difficulty with various rhythmic skills. But uh, this clip that I, I think you'll show uh, really illustrates beautifully the connection between rhythm and language. All right. And it, it is, you'll see the screen on, on screen. Uh, you'll see the scene from the movie and then you'll see the drummer who is playing the rhythm of the speech, done by two excellent actors, by the way, which which also helps because good actors have better rhythm. Uh, all, to prove that, just watch a good actor do Shakespeare. Um, but you can even do it in contemporary language. So watch this. Mr. Walker, I am extraordinarily busy, sir. I just wanted to ask about the chocolate. The lifetime supply of chocolate for Charlie. When does he get it? Why not? Because he broke the rules. What rules? We didn't say any rules, did we, Charlie? Wrong, sir. Wrong. Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that all offers shall become null and void if, and you can read it for yourself in his photostatic copy, I, the undersigned, shall forfeit all rights, privileges, and licenses herein and herein contained, etc., etc., Facts, mentis, incendium, gloria, calpum, etc., etc., memo, bis, punitor, delicatum. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You stole fizzy lifting drinks. You bumped into the ceiling, which now has to be washed and sterilized, so you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. You're a crook. You're a cheat and a swindler. That's what you are. How can you do a thing like this? Build up a little boy's hopes and then smash all his dreams to pieces. You're an inhuman monster. I said good day. Wow. Uh, the first time I saw that, I, I think my eyes popped out of my head um, and my ears. 
<laughs> popped out of my head. I had to watch it again and again and again. And I showed it to Kathleen, and we both just said, wow. Uh, but that illustrates the rhythm of speech. And you say that that extends into reading as well. Yeah. You, know, you need to know where the important um, information in sound stops and starts. You know, when we're speaking, we don't have punctuations. We don't have, uh, you know, we're not speaking in words that are separated by spaces on a page. And yet we know, and largely from the rhythm of speech, where uh, the meaningful units are. Uh, now you... I, you bring up an interesting point towards the end of the book, um, actually really far at the end. You say text and emails are rapidly supplanting phone calls. With this change, information can be conveyed, but context suffers. So it's like all of a sudden our brain, the evolution is of how we process all this is totally changed. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's deep. I, I think we really need to think about that and think about, you know, is this the kind of, uh, is this the way we want to communicate? Uh, and, and, and excellent question. Um, but in terms of rhythm, uh, another thing you point out in the book uh, is that humans obviously ha- have a sense of can. Let me put it this way. My mom didn't, but uh, <laughs> humans can have a sense of rhythm. Um, but so can very few animals, uh, uh, specifically birds. But you also <laughs> mentioned elephants and sea lions. And my question is, wow, how, how, how do we know that? I want to see an elephant uh, doing a, a two-step uh, or, or something. But uh, which brings us to Snowball, the uh, cockatoo. Um, and uh, I, I, again, just another one of those references you made in the book and i said okay i'm gonna go mm-hmm. track this down so take a uh, if you want to see a bird who has real rhythm snowball the cockatoo I, I... yeah go snowball Could watch that all day long. There's uh, an entire video of, of of all of fourteen of Snowball's different moves. I don't know. Oh, if you really? Saw that one. Oh, okay. Yeah. I sh- maybe I should have. But I just I was so uh, attracted to uh, another one bites the dust, and I hope that we don't get smacked down by uh, YouTube for uh, for playing that because it's just too funny uh, to watch. Uh, why is it? Do you think, or do you have any idea, Nina Kraus? 
why birds seem to be on the same page in terms of sound with human beings? Yeah, well, birds are vocal learners, as are humans. And the way that you learn is, um, is by imitating. And, you know, some birds are really good imitators, as, as we know. Um, kids, right away, you know, just as you make sounds, you know, your baby will go, and you just, um, you know, they're, they're really, really, really good at, mm-hmm. at, at imitating. And that's how, that's how language is learned. And other animals can't really do that. You know, like your dog will certainly understand, let's go outside. Um, but your dog is not going to be moving um, rhythmically, nor will he imitate you and say something like, go outside. Um, so it's really that, that, that connection that is, is very, very important. And, um, and, and it's a connection uh, with another living thing. Um, a very cool thing about snow, Snowball is that um, if you dance with him, he wants to dance with you. But mm-hmm. if um, you're dancing off the beat, he'll turn away. <laughs> so you know, rhythm, oh, no. and sound, rhythm and sound connect us. Oh, Snowball would have hated my mother. Uh, but uh, so speaking of birds, uh, one more clip here. I want to, uh, before we get into slightly more serious uh, topics, one more clip uh, I want to show because uh, speaking of birds uh, imitating sounds, this is absolutely amazing from uh, uh, Attenborough, uh, David Attenborough, who, who goes out and uh, in the wild. This is in Australia. And uh, just watch. What bird has the most elaborate the most complex and the most beautiful song in the world. Well, I guess there are lots of contenders, but this bird must be one of them. The superb lyrebird of South Australia. He clears a space in the forest to serve as his concert platform. To persuade females to come close and admire his plumes, he sings the most complex song he can manage. And he does that by copying the songs of all the other birds he hears around him, such as the kookaburra. It's a very convincing impersonation. Even the original is fooled. He can imitate the calls of at least 20 different species. He also, in his attempt to outsing his rivals, incorporates other sounds that he hears in the forest. That was a camera shutter. <coughs> and again. And now a camera with a motor drive. 
And that's a car alarm. And now, the sounds of foresters and their chainsaws working nearby. And thanks to the BBC for that. That is stunning. I mean, human beings can do impersonations. I, you know, I, I do a fairly passable John Wayne, but I can't do a chainsaw. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Stewart. And, and yeah. Thanks, uh, thanks to Kathleen. She's posting some of these links too. Oh, great. Thank you, Kathleen. Appreciate that. Uh, I, I don't know if that says uh, as, as much about hearing uh, as it does about the ability of uh, the mimicry of uh certain birds uh it's just um remarkable that that we they have that ability i i don't even know what that says about our own hearing what do you think nina well i think it says a lot about our hearing and also if you look at birds um you know birds are obviously tuned into their sonic environment and from an ecological perspective you know one of the things that we learned when uh, the world went silent with COVID is that we, we were able to hear the birds better. And at first people thought, oh, well, that's just because it's quieter. But actually, and uh, Mike, you're a sound engineer, you know that it's possible to measure um, how loud and uh, the bird songs themselves. And it turned out that the birds were not singing louder. In fact, they were singing more quietly because they didn't have to sing over the racket, and they were since they weren't um, expending so much energy trying to be heard, they were then able to sing more elaborate and intricate songs. And you know what's sexy to a lady bird is um, the intricacy of the song. And so you know this is is really important for the survival of, of the species. Let's talk uh, just a little bit here uh, about the pathology uh, of the brain and what happens uh, when brains are are damaged. Um, here's um, here's an example of that. This is uh, and and you did some of this in the video clip we showed earlier. But this is Amazing Grace. Oops, it would help if I actually turn the audio on. Here we go. All right. This is Amazing Grace uh, brainwaves that uh, you uh, recorded coming out from a what you call a hurting brain. Nina Krauss, what could cause that? Well, certainly getting hit in the head, so a concussion. Um, you know, since making sense of sound is one of the hardest jobs that we ask our brain to do because we have to make sense of these uh, these cues that are happening in fractions of seconds. So if you get hit in the head, you can imagine how that can dis- 
disrupt this very, very, very fine and elaborate system. And uh, you know, we've been uh, studying our athletes at Northwestern University, our elite Division One athletes. Uh, we have a grant through the National Institutes of Health where we've been studying all 500 of the, the healthy athlete, athletes, males and females across all sports, um, at the beginning and at the end of every season. Um, but if any athlete sustains a concussion, then we measure their brain's response to sound um, immediately after the concussion occurs and then um, at regular intervals following that. And what we've been able to find is that, in fact, um, the response to sound is disrupted, the timing is disrupted, and some of the, um, the, the, the magnitude and the richness of the details that we ordinarily need to pull out of sound, um, that that is now gone or disrupted. And, you know, you can imagine mm -hmm. an athlete really needs to make sense of sound yeah. um, in, in a complex acoustic space. Well, as you mentioned in the book, a athletes have a different perception of sound, as do mu musicians from other people. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things that, that we um, you know, were able to do, since we are um, measuring the responses to sound in these elite athletes at the beginning and the, at the end of every season, you know, we took 500 of, of these athletes and, and we wondered whether um, any of the ingredients of sound would be enhanced the way they are in musicians and in bilinguals. You know, it, first of all, you should know that, that sound has ingredients, you know, the same way as a visual object has a, uh, a, a texture, size, weight, um, and, and color. A sound also has ingredients like pitch and timing and timbre. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that sound is so often overlooked is because it is invisible. Um, and, and we've learned that musicians are especially good at enhancing the harmonics in sound and they pull out um, per certain parts of, of timing extraordinarily well. And, and this is very, very important, not only for music, but for um, language, for the, you know, the difference between a B and a P is a, a millisecond, microsecond change in harmonics and in timing. Um, bilinguals also have enriched um, sound processing, and they um, particularly are able to enhance the fundamental frequency of sound, which is important for pitch. And we wondered, well, did the athletes have any particular enhancement in any of the sound ingredients? And they didn't. But what we did discover is that the athletes had very quiet brains, so, you know, as I, I said, you know, the, the currency of the nervous system is electricity and there is always, uh, the brain is always on. And if you can think of the disorganized uh, electricity that is happening as a form of static, the athletes have less of that. They have very quiet brains, enabling them to hear all sound ingredients with greater clarity. So it, to me, it's really interesting that you know, this is why it's so fun to be a biologist and to be looking at sound mm -hmm. because uh, the bilingual, the musician, and the athletes all have enhanced processing of sound, but they do it in different biological ways. 
You know, it's interesting, um, and we're almost out of time here. We're actually out of time, but I'm going to run over just a little bit anyway because this is too fascinating. Um, I intuited that being bilingual had advantages. I didn't know what they were until I read your book, but uh, I have uh, always regretted. I grew up in a bilingual household, Polish, except my parents spoke Polish, did not teach us the language. I wish they had. Um, and I've always felt it was a missed opportunity. Um, and, 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 and I just intuited that there's, there's something good about that. If you know more than one language, it's got to help you some way. And you're showing this in your research. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know, the, the, the bilingual mind, uh, seems to be more flexible in, uh, dealing with, uh, complex tasks that involve, uh, quick decision-making. Um, and, you know, we, we've done a, a, a bit of work in um, uh, economically impoverished areas where, um, you know, we, we have looked at people's responses to sound who can uh, be disrupted by poverty. But what we've found is that if you speak another language, um, it can offset some of those degrading effects of um, living in an impoverished um, and especially as a sonically impoverished environment, uh, one where often there is a lot of noise and there is not um, as much one-to-one interpersonal language contact. Um, music also can ha- help offset um, this neural signature, if you will, of poverty. So, you know, again, sound is sound is so important and it's so under-recognized. And there are things that we as human beings can do in our society. We can really make choices educationally for uh, learning another language. We can honor that. We can make sure that every child gets a musical education. We can make choices for ourselves and our children um, and our society, um, but you know, by asking a particular noise, is it necessary? You know, there are many noises that are entirely necessary, but there are many that just aren't. And and you know, if we can be aware of them, and we can, as a society, move to regain our uh, you know our ability to think and to feel more calmly, um, I think that would really help us. As a final note, uh, the power of sound is uh, evident in the way uh, it reaches people with dementia. And I've seen that. Uh, our caroling, my caroling group has gone into uh, senior citizen facilities where people are, are barely there. And you start singing, and they start singing along. And these mm-hmm. memories come from decades ago. Uh, and 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 suddenly they're they're there again. They're present, um, uh, and it all has to do with the music. And, and this is uh, something else you've seen in your research. Very much so, and and it really amplifies the point that we are what we do. So if we spend a lot of time making music, for example, or engaging in positive ways with sound, so that we are strengthening our sound mind. Um, we strengthen what we know, we strengthen those memories, and, and we do know 
that um, based on what we have learned and what we have spent our time doing, um, you know, the, the connection between sound and memory is very, very deep and often uh, in, in people who um, have a hard time remembering much of anything uh, will still remember the music that they know how to make. And, uh, you know, I, I want to shout out to, uh, there's a, a, a PBS clip on, um, on Tony Bennett, and uh, he has Alzheimer's, and um, his ability to make music is, uh, is, is really remarkable. And by making music, um, you can bring him, you can bring anyone, you don't have to be Tony Bennett. Um, mm -hmm. We've all sung songs. Um, you can bring anyone back, at least for a while, into um, a world of connection. Yeah, yeah. The the whole Tony Bennett story is um, uh, really, um, I keep saying amazing, uh, but he can perform where he can't do other tasks, but he apparently still has the chops. And once he's yeah. in music, the patterns even the, are there. Yeah, even though he's in the midst of uh, Alzheimer's, um, he can, he can still do that. Uh, they won't let him perform on stage anymore, um, but he he still I, I I think they're still recording with him if if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, and he's 95 or something and uh, in the throes of dementia and it's it's that part of it is sad, but it's again we witness the power of sound. In the human mind. And memory. Yeah. Nina Krauss. So uh, I, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yes. Sorry. I just said it's a hopeful story. Yeah. It, yes. Yeah. Uh, this is a hopeful I, book. Uh, I had one quick question that, that's sure. probably putting Dr. Krauss on the spot, but you okay. cover so much and you talk about urban planning and you talk about where we're we going with text and emails. If there's one takeaway for readers from this book, what would you like it to be? Well, um, listen, I think that's probably the most important thing. We need to listen to each other. We need to listen to our, our, our babies when uh, they're young. We need to listen to our environment. Um, you know, you, you're bringing up the noise. I think that this, this issue of is this necessary and can we get rid of unnecessary sounds so that we can, in fact, really um, make sense of the sounds and train our brains to be really good at making sense of sound. So really spending our lives um, engaging positively with sound, with other people and through the activities that we do. Um, you know, actually listening to audiobooks, um, people are mm -hmm. often surprised by how much they remember with an audiobook because, you know, we've been uh, speaking orally and communicating for hundreds of thousands of years. We've only been reading for a few thousand. So our brains are really, really good at connecting and remembering through sound. Mm -hmm. And that's the big message of, of, of my book, I would say, is, is to listen and to engage in making sound, and it will help us engage with each other and with the lived world. Well, the greatest compliment I can give uh, a guest is that you made me slop over into the next hour, and uh, and we didn't even touch on a number of things that I wanted to uh, to talk about. But that's the way these things go. I would tell folks uh, if you want to learn more about this, pick up a copy of 
of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World, published by the MIT Press. Let's give uh, MIT their due here. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nina Krauss. We really appreciate the time uh, on a Sunday. I made you get up early. Uh, may- maybe you can go take a nap now. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, I hope we talk uh, very, very soon. Mike and Peggy, thank you. It's thank the Mike, you. That's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Uh, more to come. Please stick around. Hey, Vic Nakashima here at Bartlett Tree Experts, and today I'm out here in the field with Scott Anderson, certified arborist. Scott, what are we doing today? We are injecting ash trees to protect them from the emerald ash borer. The emerald ash borer was first found in the United States in 2002, accidentally brought over from Asia in woodpacking material. Since then, this pest has spread to nearly all native areas of its preferred host, the ash tree. All native ash are susceptible and they can die within one to three years of the initial attack. The damage comes from the larvae, which hatch and bore through the bark into the sapwood. Then as they grow, they chew S-shaped galleries into the phloem and cambium, severely damaging the tree's vascular system. So how do you treat for such a pest? Well, today what we're doing is we're actually injecting the ash trees on this property. Uh, So we're actually drilling holes in around the root flare of the tree, setting a plug in there with a little diaphragm, and we actually fill those plugs with a material. That material goes up to the tree, and for two years at a time, it protects the tree from the emerald ash borer. You're actually drilling into the tree to put the material into the vascular system. Yep. The material we inject into the stem works its way up the tree and makes the tissue beneath the bark toxic for the ash borer without causing unintentional harm to pollinators and other wildlife. So the method of injecting, is there anything beneficial about that method? Yeah, so the material's only going into this tree. It's not going to affect anything else around it. Um, whereas if you were spraying, you got to watch wind and also what's around because you don't want the material you're spraying to affect beneficials or get on to, you know, plants that aren't yours, could be your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, or patio furniture. Patio furniture, anything. Kids, pets. Vegetable garden. Vegetable garden. All right, so that's it for now. I want to thank Scott for his time and telling us all about injecting ash trees to treat for the emerald ash borer. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sips-on of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again. Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root of bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. Give me all that I can take. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Boy, that was uh, a fun mm-hmm. segment. Um, I especially yeah. like be, being able to trot out all kinds of those cool, <laughs> cool clips. I, I want uh, Snowball, the cockatoo, to uh, be back yeah, on the show. Check, check out the video. There's there's one that breaks down all 14 of Snowball's separate moves. Really? That that just sounds awesome. That would be uh, too too involved uh, in, yeah. for this particular show. No, but, but you'll have to watch it. You'll be you'll be laughing. Yeah. I don't know if you heard of the 
speaking of urban noise, et cetera, towards the very end, as I had um, uh, like a fire truck and police going by about a half a block away. No, I didn't. I didn't catch that. That was See, like, yeah, I know. It, we, we, we just tune it out. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure that microphone picks it up. Some of these mics, uh, the, you know, I, this mic will pick up me, but pretty much nothing else yeah. around I think here. This, this, this would pick it up, but we, it, it was more from the thing of we just tune it out. We're so used to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to call folks' attention to uh, something that, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, on Instagram this week, we've been posting about uh, Save the Bell Bowl Prairie, mm-hmm. which uh, we did uh, a show on. Uh, was that last week? I, I can't keep track uh, anymore. Um, yes, that was last Sunday. Yeah, wow. And uh, um, there's a, a, a lot of activity. Uh, involving that right now uh people are are signing petitions and they're posting about the importance of the prairie and for those of you who missed the show last week um the the bell bowl prairie is right next to chicago rockford international airport uh and it's in danger basically being bulldozed it's 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 one of the few acres of remnant prairie left in the state of Illinois, which five acre dry gravel prairie. Yes. Yeah. And, um, it, uh, we've found, uh, several endangered species on site. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> people who are out there, uh, Speaking for Jeff Scretney and others. Yes. Yeah. Jeff Scretney and, and other folks who have been out there. Um, and the danger is that it's going to be plowed, uh, the first of November. Um, and, uh, I'm hoping not. I, I'm hoping that the governor is getting wind of this. Uh, this is we can It's like cutting old growth trees, as I said last week. Uh, we just got to stop. We can't. We can't keep paving over uh, our heritage. Um, and given that we're called the Prairie State, and I and and I think sometimes uh, that uh, nickname is now ironic. It has become ironic over the years. Uh, we cannot afford to, to pave over any bit of prairie anymore. Done. Stop. There's got to be a moratorium. There has to be a moratorium. I don't care how important you think this extra space is at the airport. It's not more for important. Cargo. For, uh, for cargo. Yeah, yeah, for cargo. All right? Um, yeah, Amazon and others. So, yeah. And, can... and it's it's interesting. It's I just posted the link, but it's been picked up by WTTW. It's been picked up by national and international things at this point. The noise is getting up. Yeah, the noise um, I, is I, getting louder. Yeah. Speaking of noise, uh, but this mm-hmm. is good. This is good noise. Good um, noise yeah. And I you just can... posted the link. Great, but you can go to our website, uh, and Kathleen said, "Make sure you say this." Um, uh, and because she posted this right at the top of the page on the right side of the page, uh, right under receive our newsletter, which I hope you will sign up mm-hmm. for um, because I don't send it out very often. It doesn't bother you very much. No, I think a newsletter with this link would be good. This would be. Uh, but there's a, an icon uh, that says save the Bell Bowl Prairie. And when you click on it, it goes to the Illinois Environmental Council's petition uh, to, uh, to stop, you know, just to say to the governor, uh, please consider this prairie and don't let this happen. 
So uh, I, I've been pretty amazed by the good noise that has um, erupted uh, over this issue. So very cool, very cool stuff. Stay tuned, and hopefully we'll have some some good news to have somebody back on the show later this month. Yeah. Um, then there are other things I'm going to my list. Well, I, ahead, I was Peggy. just watching the, uh, the Bartlett spot. Oh, talking about Emerald Ash, Ash Borer. Right. That's yeah. part of the reason I played it. And then, of course, I forgot exactly why I played it. But go ahead. So um, there's a couple articles. And, and thank you to Skeet for also uh, bringing this to our attention. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and viewer uh, Andrew Fedorowski sent me this very same article. Yeah, there was a, a headline this week from WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ.org. Chicago has only 50,000 ash trees left. Should we spend millions to keep them alive? And it's um, basically talking about the forestry department in the city um, and the city trying to figure out, do they want to put the money in um to re-inoculate the 50,000 ash trees that are left. Um, starting in 2008, the city began inoculating the ash trees, which numbered about 96,000 at the time against the ash borer beetles. But by 2018, with almost half of the population dead and removed, the city decided to stop the inoculations and let the remaining 50,000 ash trees die off. Now that the city has some money, they're trying to decide, do they want to keep the canopy going? Um, or just let them die out, and it's it's uh, right now causing a little bit of a um, discussion, let's say. Yeah. Um, it says, Commissioner Malcolm Whiteside, who leads the Bureau of Forestry, says it would take at least $6 million, about $120 per tree, to protect the remaining ash for just an additional three years. But at the same time... Um, there's other groups like uh, uh, Open Lands, Daniela Pereira, saying... Who's been um, on this show. Yeah. We, we need to take another look, you know. Um, well, they're, they're saying that the city's estimates of how long the inoculations last are off. Yeah. They say yeah. the treatment um, only lasts for three years, and at, experts estimate the best-case scenario for an untreated tree with residual chemicals is a six-year lifespan. Um, yeah. And the, the push for funding to main and treat, maintain and treat some of the city's largest trees comes as the mayor's office has set aside $46 million for planting new baby trees, um, described as one of the largest planting initiatives in the history of Chicago. Uh, but as uh, Daniela Pereira says, quote, it's really great the mayor's office is putting a lot of money toward tree planting, she said, but you can't plant a very large tree. So to get the canopy we're losing from our ash decline is going to take decades one of the best ways to manage the forest would be to save any healthy ash tree you can, Pereira said. Yeah, and and they mentioned that uh, elm trees got saved, in uh, and there are American elms uh, in mm-hmm. in Grant Park. They get inoculated uh, because uh, Dutch elm disease is still an issue. Uh, yep. So why couldn't you do that to ash trees? I mean, it, yeah. it's it's in, a, it's a in, difficult. Yeah, but there's a connection here with the prairie story as well. You can't just take prairie seeds, prairie plants, and some of the soil, move the prairie, and create a new prairie. And this Mm -hmm. is the same thing here. Do we let the large canopy die out and plant little baby trees and hope we get a new canopy? 
Well, yeah, and what trees are you planting? What are you replacing? Uh, ash trees. I mean, and then and then you've got uh, Guy Sternberg downstate who's telling people look for healthy ash trees in the middle of devastation because those might be the ones that have the genetics that are able mm-hmm. to withstand the emerald ash borer. And then you plant those seeds. Um, I don't know how that is going right now, but it is, yeah. th- there yeah. are, he says he'll be driving along and, you know, and see the devastation, see dead trees, dead tre- and then there's this ash tree, boom, mm-hmm. that is in full leaf and, yeah. You know it's not been treated, and you wonder why. I've got I got a couple of ash trees right out front here uh, in my block that have not been treated as far as I know. They might have been treated, um, but they are surviving uh, emerald ash borer, and, and I keep waiting to see the decline at the top of the tree, um, but uh, that has not happened, um, and, and I guess the city has to make that decision now. And, and as the city's planting the new trees, as you say, what are they planting? As the climate shifts, what species are they planting? Right, exactly, exactly. And, um, and, and what, in, what uh, effect will that have on the ecosystem? I mean, it's tough enough for trees in, in the and city. The insects that, and everything, yeah. And our, and our canopy is declining. We have not paid as much attention to our canopy in the city of Chicago in the last decade, um, marked by certain administrations. Um, and uh, it's time to to pay attention to it again. Um, I also, yesterday, by the way, was uh, World Migratory Bird Day. Um, I, we have been talking, Peggy and I have been talking, it's time to have some uh, bird experts back on the show. Um, I, we had a, um, there was an unfortunate incident, uh, uh, on my front porch the other day, I looked out the front door and there was a dead bird right on the porch. Never seen that before. I'd never had that happen. He'd been here 21 years Have not had that happen. Um, and you said it was a hermit thrush. You thought it was a, it was a hermit thrush. Yeah. Uh, obviously migrating and somehow I guess slammed into our front door and as you said this it's sort of odd because we're we're tucked away here there's lots of foliage it's not like your your front door isn't like right out front you've got to get to your front door right you you'd have to work hard to slam into our front door Uh, and I don't know what happened uh, but it was deader than a doornail, just like lying I mentioned there. a year or two ago, I had the same, that, that was in part how I was able to ID it so fast. I'm like, I had the same thing. I had a hermit thrush hit my back door or a back window. I walked out like, what? It was right around this time of year too. Interesting. Um, and, and, and sad, uh, but, you know, if it can happen in an ordinary home, like mine, you, you know that uh, downtown is just a, a, a graveyard yeah. for, for migrating birds. Um, and speaking of which, I saw a story the other day that I've been meaning to post that I hadn't about how Pittsburgh, uh, you know, speaking of birds and, and more bird mortality, um, 
Pittsburgh is getting it right in terms of its lighting. Uh, we mm-hmm. talked about that in, uh, and I'm I'm trying to see. I thought I had that handy, uh, yeah. but the idea that uh, here it is, their dark sky ordinance. Uh, it's the first major city in the United States to pass a dark sky ordinance. Let me call this up for a second here. Hang on. I know Audrey Fisher's watching. She's probably got the link to that as well. Yeah. Um, And here it is. Um, In September 2021, Pittsburgh became uh, the first major city to rethink how urban lighting will be conducted, passing a dark sky ordinance, not only for the visibility of the night sky, but also to use less energy to help plants and animals by maintaining a crisper day-night cycle to reduce glare for better night vision and to benefit those in poorer neighborhoods who are disproportionately negatively affected by wasteful overlighting. Um, and uh, that's, that's good to see. We in Chicago didn't get it right. All right. And we're still in the process of replacing 270,000, uh, lights in the city. Some things about that are better. It will save energy, so it will save some money. But the brightness and the skewing towards the blue end of the spectrum was really not addressed. Uh, and um, as you remember, several years ago, we went out and did a test with a lighting expert. We dragged along uh, Alderman Scott Wagespack with us on a I think it was an April, chilly April night. and yeah, did, it was a chilly evening. Yeah, Monica Eng was out there with us. Yes, my, who now works for Axios. She's no longer at WBEZ, so I've been getting the Axios um, daily headlines from Monica Eng mm-hmm. and, uh, and her partner, whose name I cannot remember uh, right now. So, uh, uh, yeah. But, but th- we could have done it right, and there are lots of folks – tried to get the city to pay attention to this, but they weren't having it. They weren't going to listen. That And that's part of the problem I have with, with bureaucracies is that they... Contracts. Contracts, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure they had the lights bought. They were stored somewhere in a warehouse, and they weren't going to even entertain a notion that you could put a more effective light up in the city of yeah. Chicago. So, you know, what can I tell you? Yeah. Um. The other thing I wanted, uh, and I was going to mention real quick, um, we can get to a couple of these things afterwards because we got a text from Rick that he's only got 20 minutes today. So, okay. Yeah. I'm hoping we get a signal from him because he's not in town, right? Yeah. He's up at Horicon Marsh. Yeah. I wish I was up at Horicon Marsh. (laughs) Listening to birds and not the lawnmower I'm hearing out the window right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got Um, work. Got word from Trady, uh, Katie Tricoli uh, at WRWO Radio in Ottawa that their festival was a success, mm-hmm. the uh, Fresh from the Midwest. Unfortunately, uh, Mother Nature yeah, opened up on them about 1 p.m., uh, so they had they had to cut it short, I guess, by a few hours. It was a thunderstorm was the big issue down there. Yeah. But I also saw that uh, WRWO has it. You can go to their website and see some of the clips great uh i haven't done that i didn't i didn't realize that um i saw that go by on facebook okay 
Uh, and we didn't, uh, if there's, I was going to mention this oil spill in California, which um, is rapidly. Speaking of birds. Yeah, because dead birds are beginning to wash up. Yeah. And uh, I, I saw there was something on the news last night that I saw, and I haven't seen it in print yet. So this is the Southern California oil spill based on a pipe breaking, that this pipe has been compromised for more than a year, they're finding. That yeah. it, it's an under underwater oil pipe. Um, hmm, line five comes to mind. Um, yeah. That's been compromised for more than a year. It was known about, and it finally gave way. Doesn't surprise me, um, because when you have an oil pipeline, it's going to spill. Uh, and at the same time, we have line three, um, Enbridge, Enbridge line in uh, Minnesota, which has essentially had its work completed. So now it's pumping tar sands. I read an article somewhere, maybe uh, heated. I think it was uh, Emily Atkin uh, maybe wrote about this and said that if you look at the good that the Biden administration did by shutting down the Keystone XL, and the bad that comes from this new pipeline opening, it's a wash. So basically, um, we, we've, st- we've stood still. We're, yeah. we're in the same place. And, um, and, and line and five, much as it's Michigan governor's trying to... Goes under the Straits of Mackinac. That's the line yeah. five. And now Canadian the Canadian government's saying you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well... You know, I'm hoping the governor of uh, Michigan has other ideas. All right. Uh, let's we're going to have to see if we can get uh, Rick DeMau here for a little bit. I have no idea what the signal will be like when he checks in. It's always. But he sent a pretty picture in text. Oh, did he? It's. Uh, oh, that's true. There, I did get that. Yeah, it's you a gorgeous. Email that picture to yourself and post it. You know what? Uh, during the break, I'm going to send it to myself and see if we can. Pop it up here so people can see where where Rick is this morning. We'll be right back. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Millen. the ability to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collective Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen, they swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. There's Rick. Rick DeMaio right there. Good morning, Rick. 
<clears throat> morning, Mike. Morning, Peg from Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. Oh, uh, best little town by a dam site. Thank you very much. Um, you would know better than I would, I guess. <laughs> well, my music teacher in high school um, was from Beaver Dam, uh, Beaver oh. Dam, Wisconsin, and that's cool. he said that was their motto: "Best little town by a dam site." That's okay. <laughs> I work on that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A few minutes. Yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah. So, uh, have you been out to the marsh? Yeah. Yeah. We were there yesterday. Um, I've been there a couple of times before. It's one of the most amazing places you'll ever see. Um, I mean, all of a sudden you're driving along and there's this big wide open area. Um, and uh, this is looking northeast on the northern side of the marsh. Um, and there's obviously a lot more to see um, as you go further south. Um, it's probably not going to be as nice of a walk today because it's pretty breezy out. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of clouds and there's also some rain moving through as well. So we may end up punting on doing that today and then heading over to um, Madison in- instead, um, only because Madison is actually a little bit further west of where the rain will be. <laughs> so ah. it's more of a meteorological decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather ah. than uh, a logistical decision. But if anybody has ever been here. Uh-oh. You're back. You're back, yeah. Rick. Yeah, I know. Um, I assume both. And you're not. All right. So question I was going to ask, Rick, based on our first hour's guest, Dr. Nina Cross from Northwestern, um, you said it's a great thing to see. What are you hearing there? Oh my God, Peg, it was amazing. Yesterday, um, we probably heard, um, I would say three variations of crickets, um, several birds. There were about 20 people lined up on one of the roads. There's like a three mile um, auto tour. It's like a circle. Um, There was about 20 cars lined up. So they must've known that there was some sort of migratory um, occurrence um, at that particular place because the one road that goes across the marsh that allows people to walk was due to the fact that there were several species of migratory birds in that particular area, Um, which is nice that the fact that they animals migrating rather than the people trying to get their their photographs in. Uh, But again, to take advantage of weather like this, you're in the upper 70s and, you know, low 80s on the second week of October is, is kind of yeah. crazy. Uh, but like I mentioned, we've been um, – I know I'll come here again. It's not like the marsh is going to go away. Uh, but it's not a bad drive. It's about two and a half hours from Chicago mm-hmm. to stay and eat nearby. And it's, um, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. So we got here right when sunset – it was about an hour before sunset. So you get a lot of those nice colors. But I have to say, the drive through Lake and McHenry County, Walworth County, Dodge County, uh, Rock County. Pretty dry. um, Even though it's saying about 50% there on the map, um, they're really, really muted. And if a couple of green counties to the west of Milwaukee, I think I'm in one of those, um, there's, there's not much color of any brilliance, even though it says 50%, um, mm-hmm. I think the drought has really taken a toll. So even though there was a little bit of yellow here and there, 
I'd give it like on a scale of one to 10, as far as it being brilliant colors, like about a two or a three. So we yeah. may actually drive a little bit further north um, or just we may come up here again, you know, next weekend when the colors. A lot of the yellows are probably walnuts. And uh, as you and can see, honey that travel Wisconsin full foliage report is fantastic. And then again, you look at the area here of, of the drought. And this, again, was updated on Thursday. Um, extreme drought um, mm -hmm. now across Lake McHenry County, parts of Racine, Kenosha County, and then severe drought all the way through, you know, northern Illinois up to about the Janesville area. Um, and then moderate drought through Madison. But you know what? Even in the areas north of where you know, the drought line stops, you can see that the grasses um, are definitely green because those will obviously only need like about maybe, you know, an inch or two of water to get going again. But the trees just don't look good at all. Um, mm. So, again, yeah. this is I think this is the um, the perception that when you don't see drought on the map, also, it doesn't show you when you got it over a particular period of time. So hopefully, you know, the further north you go, um, I, I feel like I'm the Mike Novak show correspondent traveling through Wisconsin. Sure. Um, that but works. No, I mean, yeah, it, it, I, I really was hoping to see a few more colors, and, and it, just, it, it just doesn't look very good. Well, it's what we, we talked about last week, the uh, drought. Uh, set up the trees for a muted season because they're stressed. So they're not going to produce the colors in the same way they would in uh, a normal year. And you're right, maybe up north it's a little better because, as you can see from the drought map, that's not where the drought is occurring now. But right where we are here in the north part of Illinois, southern part of uh, Wisconsin, it seems it's getting worse in the last few weeks than better. Yeah, it has gotten worse. And, you know, another thing you got to be really careful about, um, you know, as a kid growing up in New York, we used to always go up into the Catholic Mountains, and then you go further north up into the Adirondacks. You get into parts of the Berkshires, southern areas of Vermont and New Hampshire. And I think one of the reasons why that area of the United States, the I'm trying to think of the word, not so much brilliant, but they just produce a better show is because you have more of a mix of trees between your conifers and your deciduous. So you see a lot of these pines mixed in. And, you know, the pines don't change color. We all know that. So this nice, you know, kind of angular green. And then all of a sudden you have these completely different colors, you know, kind of, you know, all mixed. So I think maybe further north you go, you know, even north and west of Green Bay is probably where you're going to see more of that mixture of the different types of trees and that'll even make some of the muted colors maybe a little bit better as well but again like to your point um even the rain that we got a couple of days ago was like maybe an inch and a half in some areas and it has just not gotten any better and then again you look at areas of california um most of the state north of los angeles extreme and exceptional early this week there were some showers and some thunderstorms that developed off of an old uh, tropical storm that was kind of weakening and moving northward. So they got parts of the south to San Diego uh, and even in the uh, Phoenix area. So even though there could be a return of the fires, which there typically is in the month of October, that's when you get a lot of the wind blowing around, um, or at least the higher wind speeds blowing the fires from one place to another, it still seems like in the more densely populated 
San Diego and the Phoenix, they've gotten some decent rains. So this is good. So we got the rain where we needed it. Um, also, March, most of the Western United States is phenomenally dry. And it's really interesting because at Loyola University are going to be doing their projects on how climate change impacts national parks. And um, all the parks in California going, hold on, guys, that, that's too many parks. I, I know a lot about what's going on, and let's mix it up a little bit. So we have students doing Yosemite. We have students doing, doing Redwood National Forest, uh, and then up into Oregon, um, as well as uh, the Grand Canyon. So they're part of job as 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 reporters in a sense research mm -hmm. is a better way of saying it is they look at the long-term effects of climate change and then they look and see what recent climactic events have been occurring and they have to present periodicals and things like that so they're doing news as well i'm at i i would suggest, the, suggest the, the olympic national, olympic park, national park, park in washington state yeah no one chose that Kind of, um, and again, I, I know it's a, it's a great park because you can look at the glaciers as well. But um, uh, but they did choose one park, I believe it was Mount Rainier, which is okay. okay. But I think Olympics a little bit better because I think it has much better um, much better access to the park. Um, and uh, they're going to be looking at not only the revenue that comes into the park, the surrounding area, but also mitigation efforts the parks are are using to um, help the park recover after some of these climactic events. Well, that's why I suggested uh, Olympic, because they had that horrible heat wave this year, and right. they, they were very dry, and that's an area that gets a lot of rain, and I would wonder the, what the consequences of that were in the Olympic and National. There's a higher elevation, yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of different ways that they can approach this. Um you got to remember a lot of these kids, they're taking four. not going to turn you into tree-hugging granola head liberals in a week <laughs> or weather weenies. Um, so I got I to gotta remain objective to the fact that when you got five kids doing uh, one project, they got to divvy it up in a certain way, and hopefully they'll hit a double or a triple. I don't expect them to hit home runs. But <laughs> okay. as long as they learn, as long as they appreciate They'll learn something and, and have a good takeaway. All right. Yeah, uh you know, I always – I, I, and real quickly, I always tell them the day that I saw a, a graduate student walking into the map room at the University of Wisconsin with a shirt that said, go climb a glacier. And I said, where is that? He said, Glacier National Park. And I was 21 years old. And I'm like, I want to go climb a glacier. And I say, I want you to have that, that moment. I want you to be inspired. I want you to have that epiphany that is outside of the classroom that is associated with what you learn and what you may want to do once you're done with school before your life becomes you know, rigid with a job and a parent and being a parent and where the world is at your fingertips and you got to, and you got to use it. So I don't want to get too peachy to them sometimes, but I don't want them to think, you know, five years climate change class. <laughs> okay. Let's take a, a quick look at a couple of uh, maps here. This is a uh, rain uh, ending October 8th. Um, Peggy mentioned that she got how many? How much, Peggy? Did you get in your year? Um, almost, almost two inches over about three days, including and, yesterday yeah. morning's rain, which came out of the blue. 
and I got about one inch uh, out of both uh, days of rain. So she got a little yeah. more than I did. Yeah, and you can almost see there's like there's like a little bit of an area from like uh, Southern Will County rotates northward. So we had this upper low that was over us for two days, and then it kind of moved northward a little bit. Uh, but Southern Will County and Northern Kankakee County um, had three inches of rain um, in wow. about a 24-hour period. That rain actually rotated all the way to the north and west over Lake County. Um, and then the stuff that came in on Friday came in from the north and west. And then we had a bit of came through early Saturday morning that may have woken you up and you was like a broom, you know, a heavy shower. But again, this was all last week and literally latched on to the deep moisture. We, we had dew points in the upper 60s around here, yeah. uh, which is really remarkable for this time of the year. And I think that's also one of the reasons why, and I know I got that information buried somewhere down below, is why our lake water temperatures have remained so warm. Oh, At yeah. 66, yeah. Yeah, actually, I have got that, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, very that's, cool. that's just amazing. This no, is, no, very warm. Not very cool. Very warm. Now, this is uh, yeah. from there's two two charts here that are fascinating. This is a comparison to the lake water temperatures to last year, October 1st uh, of, of this year was 66. Last year, 61.7 uh, October 2nd, 66. I mean, they're all like 66, 65 this year and all the ones from last year are in the lower 60s or upper 50s so that's quite a difference yeah so i mean if you do the math for october 8th we're almost well we are eight degrees warmer than we were last year um but the long-term average i think which is another graph shows that we're about six degrees above normal in addition to that look at the change from october 1st last year to october 8th last year um, it dropped about three degrees. And that's generally what it should be doing. The fact that we didn't drop in a period of seven days, and I've been talking about this for about a month now, is because we've been really warm, very humid during the overnight period in the month of August, and no rain. Rain will always cool you down because those clouds are up at about four or 5,000 mm-hmm. feet, and those raindrops are basically, can easily drop. I think there's another one after this. I went back and looked at 2012, and this link is available to anybody to use. Um, 2012 was when we had our all when we had our what say that again Rick uh, 2012 was the year we had a, a warmest lake water temperature ever we, we were 78 degrees in the first week of August because that was the year we had the super drought um, That remember that was the year that the yeah. lake literally dropped almost 3 feet um, over the course of 2 years we had 46 days above 90 uh, that's the second all-time highest. We had five days above 100. That's the third all-time highest. And notice at the beginning of the month, we were 63, but by this time, we're already down to 59. So we're even ahead, like literally the trend of the warmest summer ever. So when people say, oh, the lake's warm in, in mid-October, you can have a normal summer but as long as you remain really warm in the second half of September and the first couple of weeks of October, you can stay pretty darn warm. So what this shows you also is that the changes that occur in Lake Michigan are not directly related to long-term events. They're really more so related to shorter term. 
Again, so when you look at the reasons why our lake went down so much this year, it was because we were in a You look at the reason why the lake went up so much two years ago is because we were in really, really wet conditions over a two-day period, a two-year period of time. So people directly relate climate change to what's going on on the lakes. That's not true. And it doesn't mean that you don't believe in climate change. It just means that you got to do your research a little bit. You can get a more fuller understanding of what's going on with the Great Great Lakes on a shorter time span. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of rain, this is uh, the seven-day um, outlook ending October 14th. Yeah, so this basically begins on Friday ends next Friday. Um, and it shows that we'll get some rain today. There's a bunch of showers to the south of us that are trying to get themselves going. They'll kind of fall apart a little bit. But then there's another band that's going to set up during the day on Monday. Um, and that's going to be more like Monday night into Tuesday. That's going to be the real significant rain across areas of, of Oklahoma, Kansas, and western Missouri. And there's going to be a major severe weather outbreak uh, later on today and into tomorrow in that area. We have not had much in the way of severe weather in the deep south in probably three months. Uh, but that's going to change today. And eventually that rain will get to us. You notice it's not going to be you know, a dent in the long-term dryness. The pattern stays cool and dry across much of the northern Rockies. Um, that's the six, day, six to ten day precip. And I think the next one continues this drier pattern um, literally through the next week. So even though we cool off a little bit Monday and Tuesday, we go right back to being warm again uh, for Wednesday and Thursday. So a real deep trough out west. Look at all the wetness. Oh, I can go back to that. A little fast, yeah. Uh, Very, very, you know, beneficial rains from northern California up into Oregon and Washington. A lot of this is just shore flow that you typically get this time of the year. So they're going to get some really beneficial rains in that area, which is why you probably won't hear much about um, any. I mean, literally for the rest of the year in parts of Oregon and Washington. Uh, But for us, it basically stays dry. And the next few maps are probably the temperature maps showing incredibly mild weather um, up in the northeast. And by the way, where I am up here in Wisconsin, um, all the signs. Worrying them. Um, And I guarantee you when you get into the. Um, up here, it says masks are recommended, but nobody's wearing them. No one. And I'm kind of, you know, angled off to the side here in the lobby of the hotel here, but no one's wearing them. Um, wow. And that's, wow. Just, that's just the way it is. I, I think when you get into areas where people are used to not being around a lot of people, they're okay with walking around with not wearing masks. But when you go into areas where you're around a lot of people, you put them on. It's just, it's just I think it's just the way we're conditioned. More city urban dwellers, because you're around a lot of people, the mask goes on. When you're in an area where there's not a lot of people, you don't wear them. And that's just the way it is. Um, And then, again, the reason why I was talking about this is because the weather has been so nice in the Northeast and will continue to do so. By the way, they have been very, very wet across much of the Northeast. And one of the things I was doing on Friday, um, I literally took four webcams from New York, New Hampshire and Maine and showed them to my students and the colors across northern areas of Vermont and Maine are just fantastic. Hopefully this nice weather across New England will really help their local economy because they were completely shut down 
with COVID last year and the fact that the weather has been so nice. And, you know, a lot of people who took early retirement, they don't go leaf watching on the weekends. They do it Monday through Monday. You know, it's seven days a week. So hopefully this kind of weather will help their local economy as well. So, uh, so uh, uh, you, I, I know you I got, know you got, I'm hearing myself I'm hearing and that's you. hard. Um, I know <laughs> that's feedback. Yeah, I got, I got about a minute or so, but that's okay. Let's do a uh, forecast then and we can let you go. Yeah. So um, got up to 80 degrees yesterday. Uh, the overnight low this morning, I think made it down to 68. If that's the case, then that ties the record for the warmest low temperature of October. And of course, those records go all the way back to 1871. And why did they go back to 1871? Because on this date, 50 years ago, my 150 years ago. What did I say? 50 years ago? Yeah, you said yeah. 50 years ago. Right. All right, Rick, Rick, get it together. 150 <laughs> years ago. All right. <laughs> and yes, the, the Great Chicago Fire. Um, and what what's really amazing about the Great Chicago Fire is just about an hour and a half north of where I am in Beaver Dam was the mm-hmm. Peshtigo Fire. That fire was much, much worse. So while yeah. the Great Chicago Fire in the history of the United States, the Peshtigo Fire was 10 times worse uh, from a standpoint of fatalities because over 3,000 people died. So, guys, think about this. 1871, 3,000 people die in farm country in Wisconsin. That meant that the fire had to be probably 10 times the size of the one in Chicago, um, covered a much, much larger, you know, acreage. You know, the Chicago fire was, what, 2,000 acres, over 20,000 acres. Um, and it showed you the vastness of the drought and the heat wave that was going on that particular year. So, again weather and really, really windy weather as well. So the Peshtigo fire, which I'm sure a lot of people know about, was so much worse than the Great Chicago Fire. So the reason why I bring that up is all of our weather records begin in 1871 because the ones that were in the National Weather Service office in downtown Chicago were burnt up because the National Weather Service office was in City Hall. So we don't have any records from like the previous five years or three years or something like that. But the bottom line is the 68-degree low this morning ties the record for the warmest ever. The record high for today is 86. I don't think we're going to break that. Uh, but we'll definitely probably so get fast, close yeah. to 80 degrees if we get some sunshine. Um, even then, if you're not getting out and about and enjoying a day like today, um, like we always said, it's just a matter of time before we're talking about cold and snow as opposed to late August weather and early October. Yeah, California's already gotten snow, so enjoy it. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, Mono was it Mono County Pig? Um, I'm not sure where they were showing it on the news last night of all the snow that hit part of California. Yeah, somewhere in the Sierra Nevada mountains, yeah. So when you get rain on the West Coast, it's usually snow in the mountains, which is good. Good news for them to get snow. Uh, again, mm-hmm. that's that's short. That's a very, very brief period of time. It can easily go back to being warm and dry. Yeah, very get quickly. outside today. Do something. Go yeah. take a walk. Go listen to the birds. So I'm doing uh, my part. Yes, you are. And uh, give us a forecast uh, uh, for the next week. So Okay, okay so um, cloudy, near 80 today, maybe a little bit of rain. Rain tomorrow, mid-70s, and then looks like dry weather, low 70s for Tuesday. Then right back and a little bit more unsettled by the end of the week. I know I'm breaking up there, so hopefully yeah. someone was able to read my lips. 
Uh, well, no, well, except you froze. So you said it was dry, and then what happens at the end of the week? Uh, end of the week, more unsettled by the time we get to next weekend. Yeah. Okay, and when cool. when do we break this string? I think, the, you know, we have what what we call Indian summer, but this has just not stopped. It has just gone right across, which is what's so odd about it. Yeah, I mean, Indian summer, you need to have a frost first. We haven't been right. below 50 degrees yet. <laughs> it's crazy. So we, we, we have to redefine Indian summer. Um, right now, I don't see anything really getting cold around here until the end of October. And um, we could talk more about long-range forecasting and um, hurry next week. But right now, the tropics are quiet, which is nice. Okay, good. All right, enjoy the uh, the uh, Horicon Marsh, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Glad I was able to meet uh, greet you guys from Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. Best little town by a dam site. Send photos. That's Dam Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Talk to you later, Rick. All right. Uh, there he goes. And we do have a comment from a listener. Yes. That is now false summer. It's not Indian summer. It's false summer. So it's false summer. So uh, I see, and I thought about that, and I thought, is that an insult to call it Indian summer? It doesn't seem like it, but uh, I don't know. But look it uh, up. False summer. I guess I will. We'll figure that out. All right. Woo. Okay. Uh, Want to thank. Nina Krauss, PhD, for being on the show today. That's right. Go get the book of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World. Thanks to meteorologist Rick DeMille. Thanks to Kathleen uh, for all the help she did this week. Thanks to Legata, who disappeared, came inside and disappeared. And uh, to Basil the dog, who's probably still on the porch. So, uh... Until next time, I guess all we've got to say is uh, go green or go home. Uh, Stadler? Uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.